Welcome to the Meta Woman Podcast. We address the issues, opportunities, and challenges facing women in the development of the metaverse, the biggest revolution since the internet itself. Every week, we bring you conversations with top female talent and business executives operating in the gaming and crypto industries. Here's your host, Lindsay the Boss Poss. The Meta Woman Podcast starts now. Hello, and welcome to the Meta Woman Podcast, part of the Holodeck Media Podcast Network. I'm your host, Lindsay the Boss Boss, and from Struggle to Success, we're covering it all. Our returning listeners, thank you so much for supporting the show. Thank you so much for all the ratings. I actually checked the Spotify for the first time the other day, and there's so many ratings. So thanks, everyone, for that. And for all the new listeners, uh, I hope you enjoy. I hope you'll join me again. I'm really excited to introduce today's guest, who's someone that is just in the weeds with game making and game development and also has a really great, in her own words, Janice Joplin voice. So (laughs) perfect for podcasting. Today on the podcast is Ashley Olmstead, who is an associate experience designer director at Ripple Studios, where she works on Battlefield 2042 and Battlefield Portal. So maybe some things you guys have heard of, I would say. Um, Ashley, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. To start, I would love for you to give a short background about yourself, about what you do, and how you got into game design. Yeah, so like you said, I'm Ashley, (laughs) and I am the uh, Associate Experience Design Director over at Ripple Effect, which works on Battle... We work on... We used to be Dice LA. We work on Battlefield 2042 and Battlefield Portal within 2042. Um, And uh, I... Got my bachelor's in game design from DigiPen. And from there, I got a master's in UX from Maryland Institute College of Art. And I'm currently pursuing my doctorate in instructional design from Northwestern uh, University. And um, I started at Minecraft almost immediately after graduation. And I was at Minecraft for a couple of years. Um, I'm most well known for my work there on the recipe book and some accessibility work I did. I worked there during the Better Together update. So that means I was there when they shipped on every, right after they Microsoft bought Minecraft from Mojang. It was when they shipped Minecraft on every console platform, um, including AR, VR, and mobile and uh, PC console. And then I went on to make Scholastic Book Fair games. And then I went on to work on some indie studios and go to a Star Wars team at EA and then eventually leading my way to Battlefield. Crazy. What a time to join the Minecraft team. I actually didn't realize that. Yeah, the I'm probably most well known for my work on Minecraft. The recipe book is what I call my baby. So that was my solution to creating a tutorial in Minecraft without having a tutorial in Minecraft. Because when you're merging the different audiences of like the 4J console version and then the hardcore Mojang Java people, who were used to using like a wiki, not even getting any information from the game. And then you have this whole group of bringing in mobile gamers who are used to having everything at their fingertips. And then when you're shipping in VR, it's really important that you're not creating a space where people have to break away from their environment. Obviously that increases nausea and other separation problems. Um, and so uh, that was my solution to creating a tool that could benefit all those different player types. That's wild. I can't even, yeah, that's a big, like, that's a big project, I would say. Um, well, and I, I want to back it up a little bit because one of the things that we talked about when we met 
many moons ago now was uh, the education element. So I, what has kind of motivated you to keep pursuing further education? I know you were actually the first person who taught me what DigiPen was. <laughs> so thank you for that. Because now I've, every conference I've been to, I'm like, oh my God, I actually okay. know what DigiPen is. <laughs> um, but to go on and get your master's and now a doctorate, like what has made you want to keep going? Um, I will actually say that I got my master's only because it was the pandemic was just starting and uh, my benefits at work covered a reimbursement program. So I was like, I'm not doing anything else. Nobody is. We can't go outside. I might as well do something. And then I think DigiPen, like you just kind of briefly mentioned, it's a very, very competitive program. And I think I was kind of surprised at how not as difficult the other schools were. (laughs) And so it didn't seem like that much to add on. And then eventually it was also like, I mean, games is a difficult thing to progress in. And anything you can do to kind of stand out helps. But also, I think that a lot of people get their knowledge from experience, which is crucial. But there is mm-hmm. some fundamental knowledge that gets lost when you, um, when you, this is all like my theory, when, when you progress because you're just more confident in who you are as a designer, which is a great thing. But it's easy right. to forget the basics and it's easy to forget including the right people and, you know, prioritizing the right people in your designs so i think sometimes that helps a lot um i also think that all designers should constantly be working on learning tech in general but especially designers should constantly be working on learning about design and updating design Mm -hmm. design changes a lot it's so closely entwined with psychology um and it's very important for that reason I actually had a friend in college who was uh, doing a mixed major between architecture and psychology. And it was all about how buildings make you feel. And that was a, a cool little design thing in there. Um, but one other question, because you are a designer, can we talk about what the difference is between UX and UI? You had given me a kind of an impassioned answer to that previously. So I want I want the world to know now. Um, I think this is probably my biggest daily struggle still is people are still learning what UX versus UI is. Um, You can solve a UX problem with UI, but not all UX problems need UI. UI is the user interface. It's things like menus, buttons, interactions, um, how, how the stuff is presented to the user in a visual way. UX is the experience the user goes through. So if you've ever entered um, like a, any kind of like, website or app and you don't know what the fuck is going on (laughs) sorry if i'm not supposed to cuss but but then that's bad ux ux is one of those things that's easier to describe when it goes wrong than when it goes right but essentially there's this great analogy from extra credits which is a like little mini web series james portnow does and some other people and um they talk about how you could be a great clothes designer, right? You can have all these clothes, you can make all these beautiful dresses and shirts and stuff, but you don't know how to sell them to the people. You don't know, like, there's things like, how, when I walk into a store, what do I want to see first? What's the flow of the store? What color are the hangers? What's the whole vibe? All of that stuff around how we sell the clothes and how you present the clothes to the shoppers is the UX. That's the user experience. But the user interface could be like, Oh, well, you have the tables here. These are my tables. These are my hangers. 
and this is the register, but, and these are my shirts. But as far as like how those all get together and how the customer experiences shopping in that store, that's the UX. That's a really good analogy that I will think about often. (laughs) Why do you think it's like, I don't know exactly how to ask this, but why do you, in, in, especially since you do fight this in your day to day, why do you think it's kind of like detrimental to mix those? Like, what does it hurt when companies don't have clearly defined folks for both of those roles? Um, yeah, I think that's really easy to see because UX is more similar to product design. So if you've ever seen, so, which means like it, we identify our users and we focus our user goals, whereas products, um, product's job is identifying users and focusing on the business goals. So those are almost the same thing, except I'm prioritizing the player goals or in games or in non-games, the user goals. The product is prioritizing what the business goals are. So in order to like, it's really easy to see when people focus on just UI and product or something like that, because players are not going to be around. You're not going to have people who are retained Mm -hmm. in your experience. They're not going to have features that drive them to keep playing. They're not going to have things that's what they want. Um, I think there's this really old school example of UX that I think is wonderful, which is um, in old 3D platforms, for example, it's also like, you won't know what's going on, right? You, you, you'll rage quit, like, honestly, or you just won't come back. But like, there's in old 3D platforms, uh, when players used to jump, they didn't know where they were landing, because there was no like depth perception. So this is a great example of UX solved without UI, they added a drop shadow, and the drop shadow now allowed players to see where they would land, and it made the jump more real. And small things like that, that might seem like not a big deal, But if you've ever played a puzzle platformer, then you know that 90% of the game is jumping. And if you don't know where you're jumping, you're going to be really mad. You're not going to want to play. Your success rate is going to go down. And you're not going to recommend that game to anyone. That's so funny because there's a certain game that came out within the past two years that I could think of. But now that you're saying it, I'm realizing had a a good, they focused purely on UI and just weren't met with a lot of success. For the record, it was not an EA game I'm thinking <laughs> of. But I don't want to like just crap on a game for no reason. That's what the internet is for. And speaking of that, are how do you incorporate like what the gamer audience thinks into your game designs? And I ask this because like gamer audience is tough and fickle <laughs> and everyone wants everything built specifically for them. Um, but how do you kind of pick what feedback to pay attention to or actually incorporate versus what is it when is it like okay like (laughs) that's just impossible we can't make everyone happy uh there's several stages of this i mean like we kind of previously talked about it you you need to identify who your target users are who's your who are the players that you're going after for something like Minecraft, it would be like you have the creative people and you have the survival people and you have mod builders, you know, something like that. These are just, these are not the official ones that were used. I'm just bullshitting them off my head right now. And when you get feedback, you should always look at does that benefit who we're going after? And is that feedback subjective or objective? Which is also, everyone knows, this is a crucial feedback filtering phase and for everyone. And then also, you have data. Um, it's really important to use your data when you can. Like, you know, what are our players doing? What do we see? Are people confused by this? Like, what 
and you you go out and I even do like gorilla user research, you know, I'll scour Reddit forums. We all do. We see those comments. Trust us. <laughs> but <laughs> but you know, that's an important part of it. Like it's it's understanding what is the loudest feedback might not be the most prevalent feedback, but fortunately the data is there, but it's also prioritizing the users. And then after that, just in development in general, there's a whole phase of prioritization that comes in that's like, do we have the resources to fix this problem? How can we fix this problem within the resources? Maybe the best solution is something that actually takes six months, but we don't have a team that is capable of doing that. We don't have the time available for that. So there's another solution that we know isn't as good, but it is a solution that will take one month. And that, and maybe this feature is like a pretty third string feature. So you know, we don't need to move other things around to prioritize it. So there's all that kind of stuff that comes in with tech and development and quality testing. Yeah, I feel like, well, I, in, yeah, the, the time and labor constraints are actually something that I hadn't, I mean, that's something that is abstractly that you always think about, but I don't know that I had thought about like, oh, this solution that is the solution is just not feasible um, when it comes to updating after launch. Like that's just not, I don't know. I hadn't thought about it like that, I guess, even though that's like the most basic way of thinking about it. But anyways, can you also tell me kind of what your day to day is like when you're getting ready for a launch? So we've talked about kind of post launch and feedback, but what are you doing leading up to it? Um, and I guess I'm asking for all the gamers out there, like, what is crunch really like? <laughs> um, so I will say my mind has changed a little bit now that I moved into leadership, but um, Crunch, I think there's been a massive movement in the game industry to get rid of crunch culture um, because of how draining it can be on your team. And the quality of work that comes out is really just not as efficient as the quality of work can come out with more reasonable work-life balance. Um, with that being said, crunch culture happens all the time. <laughs> but there is a conscious movement to try to not do it. It used to be kind of like a sign of pride like, oh, I worked 100 hours last week and this week, and now I never leave my house or I never go home. Like, that used to be kind of like this badge of pride people had, but that toxicity, fortunately, is super waning out. Um, but uh, with that, crunch is, it's, uh, it's a lot of the prioritization that we talked about before. It's re-looking at the scope and understanding what is important to get in before launch and what isn't. Um, the quality verification or quality assurance team, it's called both, on your on each game will have like a, you must hit this many bugs, like curing this many bugs, and you must pass this many features in order up for us to say we have reached this milestone. And obviously that will affect like when beta comes out or when a game comes out if we don't hit that. And just like a movie, usually our final date is relatively unmovable. I mean, if you do move it, it's it happens and it's big news every time, right? You know, and um, but it's because something wasn't hit during the quality check marks of those points, and it's, it's usually something major. It's not like it's not something minor. It's usually something game breaking or something um, breaking, maybe from PlayStation rules or Apple rules or something like that. Um, and when that, then we have this like pretty much at that time, it becomes all hands on deck. And people just kind of go through, just like if you think about last minute packing for a trip and it's like, doesn't matter, just help, help, like clean the Airbnb, you do that, it doesn't matter, like just grab it and go. And that's kind of how it works, which is like 
really fun, as I'm sure you can imagine. But that's <laughs> <laughs> great. Yeah. But I mean, that's what I mean. You, it's it is a right race to the finish line if you're in crunch period, and it isn't a part of adding new features. It's a part of getting the quality to what we can and trying to just fix as many things and polish as many things as possible. It does seem like, and this is this is a completely theoretical question, just based on your experience. It does seem like in the past two years, like ever since the pandemic started, so many studios have been delaying games. Um, not necessarily. I mean, a lot of them are delaying without a hard and fast launch date, I will say. So it'd be like, oh, it's coming towards the end of 2022. And it's like, oh, it's coming towards the beginning of 2023. So it's not like it's it's a little different than the scenario you you said where it's like, OK, you have the launch date. It is this day and moving it. But what do you think has happened over the past two years with game development and like why there's so many things being delayed? This is a big, broad question. It's okay. Too, so. I mean, it's quite a simple answer, to be honest. The same thing that's happened to every single thing in the world. A pandemic. Yeah. Hit, and we can't go into the office and use our network servers. We're all just a bunch of 20 to 40 year olds living in the same apartment buildings you guys are. We don't have network servers in our basements either. You know what I mean? So it's really yeah. just a matter of that. You know, you can't, you have the communication problems, you have the network problems, you have you're not having the access to resources. People don't have access to the sound team doesn't have access to their soundproof rooms with all their equipment. The animation team doesn't have those bodysuits that they need to be able to do the proper rigging. I mean, when you're not have access to your life, to your resources, and you don't have access to your people in a collaborative environment, obviously that's going to cause delays. Right. Do you like, again, this is theoretical, but when, how do you see that? getting better because it's like i mean it has it it has a lot of i know a lot of people are returning to office but now it's like oh i mean (laughs) now nobody wants to go back in and there's like all these other which same um there's all these other problems though i mean i actually think there's been a big movement in most of tech to not make people go back to the office which right i um i know for someone like me has i've gotten way more work done being at home but that's because the way my I, brain works. I am someone like the same way. Yeah. <laughs> um, and maybe even too much work at sometimes. <laughs> yeah, but um, <laughs> but I think that what's encouraging is so the people that need the equipment, the hybrid lifestyle is pretty appealing to them. I also think that okay. we live in a more international world than we ever have um, before. Okay. So the idea of traveling to go to an office for a week, isn't that crazy? And I mean, I've worked on most game teams that have worked across country, across the globe and people fly back and forth. And that's pretty common. I think um, that I also think that just like with anything, with any new tech, with any new change or any new society formation, like things take time and we learn from them. Right. And you build an iterative process on improving them. I think you've already seen those improvements. I think if we look at two years ago, more games are coming out than they were two years ago. You know, and I also think I know working in the in in the environment, people are very familiar with the work from home life now. And it's not this like, oh, you don't know how to work Zoom. Oh, you don't see my Slack message. Like some of this basic communication stuff is not as much of an issue, which that is a huge piece of it. Right. That makes sense. So two notes about that. The first is that I'm definitely the same way in that I get way more done at home. And I was actually talking to my husband about this and he intentionally didn't go in on a couple of hybrid work days because he basically said like, I can't talk to anyone. I can't have these, like, I need to be at home, like focusing. And I thought that was kind of backwards from 
company that insisted on everyone coming in. And the second is that I'm so glad that you weren't telling everyone that they have plenty of games to look forward to in 2023 that we're going to get back on track. <laughs> Y'all heard it here first. <laughs> no, I'm totally kidding. But it is, I mean, your point is, is kind of, I guess, an obvious one, but it's still nice to hear that from the inside that it's not like some crazy problem. I mean, there are problems within the game industry always, but I'm glad that it's, things are starting to reach a rhythm finally. And I think that, yeah, when you have a whole shift to offline or to at home so fast, just takes a second. I mean, I feel like the same thing happened in healthcare and movies, to be honest, you know? So it's just, Mm -hmm. it's just everyone adjusting to the new life. Yeah. Yeah. Which at home is good with me. For those of you not watching the video, Ashley's dog also popped in earlier and I'm a huge fan of when dogs pop into the podcast and that happens a lot more at home than the office. Um, Okay. Refocusing here. You have also worked in mobile gaming. So you have this kind of across the board experience from mobile to VR, PCs, consoles, everything in between. Do you have a favorite? Why or why not? And do you think that the communities for them are, are, or I guess, what can you tell me about the difference in communities between all these different kind of groups? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, am I favorite to, to play on or my favorite to develop on? Both. I was going to ask you what your favorite games to play were later, too. <laughs> I mean, I'm a PC gamer for playing wise, um, but I make a point of trying everything because I think that's important to like keep up. Especially if you're going to say you're going to design experiences for every platform, you sure as hell better know what those platforms feel like. <laughs> but um, I would say my favorite to design for is more the PC console game, but that is largely sort of related to your second question, which is like the gamer types. What gamer types do you get? Um, it tends to be a more competitive environment. And as a competitive gamer myself, I appreciate that. I also. I like that audience group. I think that audience group is really opinionated, which is a good thing as a user experience designer. I think a lot of people think those, that's a bad thing, but um, I love failure. You, you, failure points out exactly where you need to fit, fix. And I think that that's like, it's almost like the cliff notes of designing, right? You know, it's like, hey, it's right here. It's right here. It's right here. And I, I love having a passionate, in, like, that's the reason I work in games over other software. I love having a passionate user base, a pa- someone who genuinely gives a shit about what you're making and isn't just there to like deposit their paycheck or some like banking app or something like that. But I just, I love that. Um, I also think that the cross-platform environment is just fun um, because it's more challenging. PC console, it tends to be like, it is cross-platform, but it's almost, it's almost those when you become such a hardcore gamer, those languages become a lot more ubiquitous and you just have to prioritize the more complicated one. So I think that like in that case, you always prioritize console because it's a lot easier to navigate around with a mouse than it is a a controller. Um, I think the mobile game environment is fun and it is the more complicated UX to design in because of the gesture interaction and the, the, um, the simplicity of the screen, right? You're, you're left with very little that you can choose. So I would uh, like from the UI side and the, it makes the UX more complicated. And a general rule of thumb I like to keep up my sleeve is that you lose exponential users with each click. So that makes mobiles quite, quite, a, quite a difficult uh, environment to work in. <laughs> but I also find it 
um, I think I find it in some ways more simplistic because you can't get as crazy with the mechanics either. But with that being said, I think that the audience of each platform has kind of changed. I think people think of mobile gamers as not not gamers, and I don't think that's true anymore. I don't think that's been true for a while, but I especially don't think that's true now. Um, I mean, especially when you look at things like Pokemon Go or Diablo, like <laughs> Minecraft. There's a lot of big games on mobile now, and I think everyone has a phone in their back pocket, and I have not met a single person who doesn't play at least one phone game, including my great-grandma. Like, everybody plays something. And I think that that's the unique thing about mobile, which makes it really cool. I think console and PC is just like, because like I said, they're the more hardcore environments. But with that being said, they're also um, the environment, the audiences don't tend to be what people think they are. <laughs> so it's important to always look at your data. Like uh, I always like to remind people that women between the age of 25 and 35 are actually a huge huge percentage of FPS players, which makes sense because moms only have about 20 and 30 minutes of time to give at any moment, which is about the length of a match. And they got a lot of built up rage and they're ready to shoot some people. So <laughs> when you really think about who are my users, why are they playing this? That kind of stuff makes sense. I love that note about moms and pent immigration because I think that that's absolutely true. Um, that's so fun. And I know that one of the things, so one of the things that we actually didn't touch on there was a little bit more of the VR and AR stuff, but that's okay. Cause that's the newest, right? Like that's, I mean, luckily Oculus has been around for a bit, but in terms of actually getting the user base and getting people on it and whatever, that's the most new. We have the whole metaverse thing happening now. Are you, as someone who is in game development, are you thinking that you want to move into the newer technologies as well? Like, are you interested in that? Or are you more interested in, in doing what you're doing now with console development, which I don't think is wrong, by the way. <laughs> I mean, uh, so obviously I have shipped, I've worked in Minecraft uh, for AR and VR. Right. And I have worked in those spaces. Those spaces are very unique, um, each for their own reasons. VR has a very unique kind of, um, UI and UX design required because of that added part of um, the immersiveness that is unique. And, you know, you have to account for people's nausea and how to get them out of the space quickly without like breaking their brain, essentially. <laughs> and like, you know, people can't just rip off the headset. That's a good way to make everybody vomit everywhere and hate their life. And <laughs> AR, I think is cool. I think that there's so much more to do with it than what we're doing. Um, and I think everybody thinks that, but it's also, it's still finicky, right? We're not, we haven't really nailed it down besides in the aspect of like Pokemon Go. But like, when you think of like the HoloLens, like that's still not quite nailed, nailed down, right? Um, and so I think for that reason, there's still a lot to go. I personally struggle with VR as a player. Um, I get seasick, I get really bad motion sickness, seasickness, car sickness, the whole works. And actually, when I was working on Minecraft, they sent around this clip of me puking within 12 seconds of the first original version of, like, around the office. And it was like, okay, I'm... That is so rude. <laughs> I'm hilarious. <laughs> but <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm getting on my headset and I... Oh, my God. And you hear me running out of the room. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, it was wonderful. That was like our very first attempt. So that's not what it's like anymore. So I kept wondering, because you keep bringing up the sickness thing. And that's not that people don't talk about that, but it's not a huge focal point for a lot of people. But now I'm seeing 
I would say as a user experience designer, it should be your focal point because yeah. I think that's people's main resistance to VR. I don't think it's like this like conspiracy thing. I think people are like, I get car sick and I don't want to feel nauseous. And you know, not everyone has candy ginger right by their VR like I do. So <laughs> But I do think it's a cool space. Unreal tip there. Great <laughs> yeah, tip. Yeah. Great tip. I really recommend keeping candy ginger in your VR case. <laughs> but so, do you? What do you think, as someone who's in game development and game design, of kind of like I don't know exactly where I'm going with this question, but I would love to hear more thoughts on kind of the metaverse, where we're going with gaming. That's that's what I'm trying to get to. That's the crux of it. Like. Where and how and when do you kind of see gaming changing to having more immersive experience, whether it's AR, VR, or even just, I don't know, like better cross-platform play or I don't know, like better technology to actually engage with the games. Like as someone who designs games, what are you thinking about all this new stuff? Um, like more consistency across platforms and stuff is kind of too low. Like people are already working on that right now. And that's not, I mean, like we were working on that in Minecraft 10 years ago. You know, I think people are still working on, no one's nailed it, but I think that's just a little low for the bar. I think where we really have, and I think where this is where games is going regardless of the platform, but then having these additional platforms opens it up more, is just having games be for everyone in every way. And that means like, not just like, oh, like, you know, for different people, like a, like a girly girl and a tomboy and a, um, a femboy and a heart and a macho man. It doesn't matter. Like all that shit. Sure. Yeah. For, for real, like games for everyone. But then also it's like, uh, your like people's different levels of abilities, right? I mean, accessibility has always been a huge focus of mine. Um, especially like when they made the mind, the colorblind filter for Minecraft and like a bunch of things like that, like, you know, having games be reachable and not being limited by what our physical bodies can do and what our hands can do like that. That's a huge benefit. I remember in college, I was working with, we were messing with this thing that I just forgot the name of it and I feel really bad for it. But it's there's this equipment that goes on your head and you can think four different thoughts and those could be four movements that you could program in your game. So like, you know, if you were, if you're physically impaired, you could still have it. A lot of cognitive disabilities. There's a Minecraft for the blind that's insane. It's awesome. I really recommend it. It's called Minecraft Beyond Sight. And it's all these kinds of tools that people are developing that makes games for everyone. And I think that part of that is making games reach more people. And another part is making games more inclusive for people. And I think that AR and VR and um, even different consoles and all these kinds of environments create that opportunities in ways that we didn't have. Well, I love that one of the things that I've been thinking about more lately too is that the more you know designers, experience designers, tech design, everyone starts designing games for more people, the more like, real life applications you can get as well. Um, I, I mean, I think games are like the most fun way of haptic suits teaching different things and having the the games where you can think things and then applying that to people who might be experiencing um, paralysis or something of that nature. So I think it's cool thinking about how game development can actually then translate into the medical field and into like way more points of accessibility. So I'm really glad that you brought that up because that's that kind of tech element is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, when you're kind of designing games for accessibility, have you seen any of your designs that be incorporated into like other applications outside of gaming at all? 
It's okay if not. I'm just um, curious. Well, I've also worked outside of gaming. Like, I worked on Google Maps and stuff, too. But um, right. I would say they probably... I read that on your profile if or on your portfolio. <laughs> I, really like, but I did. <laughs> um, but I will say that um, I'm sure it has been, whether I'm aware of it or not. Actually, I did interview someone who told me that they used one of my designs. They didn't know it was my design, but they mentioned it. I was like, oh, I designed that <laughs> in an in, in inspiration. But um, I think that that's part of just like any creative field, really any field period, you learn from what everyone has done. So you're grabbing all these different experiences, look at, looking at pros and cons, where are the areas of opportunities, what can we improve, what do we think isn't successful, you know, so I do think that I'm sure it has been, you know, um, but it's not, but I also know that I use lots of other people's designs too. So that's kind of that's part of the process right i think is just creating that error of nature super cool i've been a big i've been using this phrase a lot lately but a rising tide lifts all boats that's how i feel about accessibility and game design so many other things are going to spawn from that and it's really only good news to make your games playable by everyone um so i want to switch gears a little bit and talk about these touch a lot about your work as a designer but now that you're in management things are like that's new and different um well it might not actually be new and different but the point is that <laughs> it's a little bit different than the hands-on experience as as on the development side or on that design side so what made you want to do that like what made you want to go into that management role um i, I would almost say it's my personality i'm kind of like a i'm a self-prescribed hard ass at work i'm like a juggernaut i'll come in and be like this you guys don't know what UX is, blah, and then I, I disrupt everything, and then um, in a nice way though, <laughs> and um, and so um, naturally that led into me teaching the studio what and all various studios what UX is and how it should be incorporated to the design process. UX as a field is relatively new within game design. It actually came from app design and then moved into game design, so um, people are still learning on how how we. How we include those goals effectively like what is the line between game design and experience design and what is the line between um ux design and ui design and uh ux design and product design and how we use all of those things to incorporate as a whole feature so i think that's the main difference is i'm working on more of like processes and supporting my team which rather than being an individual contributor but obviously in the role of leadership, you still review everything and you're the one who sets up the initial goals and stuff. Do you ever miss being on the ground? Every day. I wasn't expecting such a strong <laughs> answer. I think most managers miss working on the project. You join something like games because you're passionate about what you do. So I would imagine most, right. at least most of the ones I know, you know, they would much rather be working on the work than handling the problems but you know someone's got to do it and we're, we're willing to do it <laughs> um what can or do you have any kind of advice for people who are looking to move up into managerial positions is there anything that you sort of wish you had known before you made the jump from design developer into like more more management stuff um so my biggest piece of advice is actually not not tech advice it's not even business advice. It's just everyday life advice, which is, um, we've talked about this a few times, but games is an extremely passionate industry. Design isn't a passionate industry, period. And whatever you're working on, right? Creative 
work is passionate. <laughs> and, um, so the best advice I can give is that you cannot control how other people react. You can only control your reactions. And there is nothing more crucial than moving up in management than dealing with difficult situations in kind of this in a level way, even when it's totally crossing the line. Um, that's not to say you should let things slide because you shouldn't. But it is to say that you have to always be mindful while you're doing it. And I don't mean, mean be mindful from like this, like manners, like this, like, oh, I'm mindful that I can't like be too aggressive. Like, that's not what I'm saying. I'm aggressive as fuck. Be aggressive. But I'm saying like, always be within that line. Don't let your anger get the best of you. Don't let like, don't, you know, and that's really hard to do in a lot of these workplaces, especially in games, especially when you have like, you wake up to at least 40 tweets saying that your design is shit and you ruin their favorite game for life. Like, so what? Like, that's part of life. And people are allowed to have their opinions, but it's your responsibility to handle how you react to that opinion. Well, that's, I mean, I was thinking about that when you were talking about that, I was thinking about it more in a work oriented role. And I was thinking, God, she probably has so much practice from the internet existing (laughs) in, in how to handle difficult work situations because of the way the internet reacts to everything that games do. Um, so I kind of, I mean, I applaud you for taking that approach. It's not easy to shut out kind of the negativity and it's also not easy to find the lesson in it. Um, so I appreciate that. I think what you said earlier about failure is your favorite thing and learning from it. Um, that takes practice. Uh, and I say that as someone who is not always the best at receiving feedback. I can be quite candid about that. So I definitely appreciate that point of view. Okay, so before we get into the last segment, this has been so much fun, by the way. I really appreciate you coming on. This has been great. Um, before we get into the last segment, oh, I forgot to ask you, what what are your favorite games to play? This is so um, important. So mine obviously change. I actually, I'm a big board game player. Love board games. Can never, yeah, never get, get away from board <laughs> games, but. I, you, I've noticed that my pattern of genre games is more, more related to what games actually do have really good UX, which it took me a while to notice that, but that is true. Um, I, I, I don't, I, I go through like phases of playing different games for certain times. Right now I'm back in a WoW phase, which I'm ashamed to admit. But one thing about WoW that I think is crucial, I've been playing since the beta and vanilla in 03, uh, is that every update they've had has really been a UX update with a new narrative skin. And I think that they do a really good job of listening to their players, adding in player created mods as like features, listening to what's successful and what's Mm -hmm. not successful. They've changed that game so much in the last 15 plus years. And it's, I think that game, and I also think that it's cool that you could be any type of gamer and have a different experience within that game and you can play different things. For that, I really respect WoW. I also think that they've had their ups and downs. Don't get me wrong, but I'm, I, uh, <laughs> I also really enjoy, I go through, I really enjoy shooters, obviously, because I play Battlefield a lot. I have, I'd say the most active one I play, though, is Overwatch. And But right now they're in the Overwatch 2 beta, so I'm looking forward to t- testing that out. Um, but not to be too much of a Blizzard person, my... Uh, I would say my favorite game series of all time is Rayman. And I really recommend Rayman. If you have not played it, love 3D platformers. And it's fantastic. Fine. Very cool. Well, that's also good to know. I mean, as a UX designer, kind of what games are thinking about that. So 
And I initially asked the question. I wasn't expecting to get that out of it, but very cool. So <laughs> thanks for sharing. Okay. A quick summary of things that we talked about so far started with the difference in UX and UI design. And you had a really good analogy of uh, the, a store. So UX is how a person might walk in and through a store, whereas UI are the functional elements of the store, the stands, the hangers, the cash registers, the ambiance, the way things are organized, the walking patterns, that's all UX stuff. Uh, I thought it was really cool when you talked about how in jumping games, uh, how adding a drop shadow allowed users to very much or to much more easily understand where they were jumping to and how. So that was a UX element that was uh, really cool to note. When it comes to incorporating feedback into games, talked about how the loudest feedback may not be the most prevalent just because the loudest might be something that's backed in data that you can see on the back end of this particular piece really isn't necessarily working the way we want it to. Um, what are people actually doing in order to get through this thing? But also that you do scour Reddit boards and wake up to anger tweets all the time direct from users. So incorporations of solutions to all these issues are subject to time and labor constraints. So maybe that the solution that you want to implement takes six months and lots of labor, but it's just not feasible. So you go with the one month solution that the team can actually accomplish to make the game better for that end user, even though it's not going to maybe necessarily be the best solution, kind of get as close to that as possible given time and labor constraints. We talked about crunch, which was fun for me because we all read about crunch, but I don't know, having someone on a man on the inside is really fun. Um, there has been a movement to get rid of crunch. The whole, I crunched so hard and I'm so proud of myself for it is going away a little bit, that kind of toxicity, but crunch still happens. Uh, the day of a launch can be really chaotic and stressful. Um, the crunch kind of comes in by reprioritizing scope and goals, particularly when it comes to launch. And the QA team will help determine what bugs and features have to be hit before launch and really get that ready to go. And on the day of, it's just kind of a, a scramble to get as much done as possible. Um, I asked you when game development was going to start happening again in a very broad sense. And you noted that the pandemic has just made it hard to make and release games. Obviously, at first, there's a lot of adjusting going on, but now we've kind of gotten to a point where a hybrid model is totally possible. People can have access to the things they need to access to actually do their job, and development is starting to get back on track. Uh, one of the things that I just noted, but I'll note again, is you you talked about failure as pointing out what needs to be fixed and making it actually a lot easier. Called uh, it specifically the cliff notes of designing, which I thought was a really depth way of describing it. Uh, having a passionate user base makes things a lot more fun to design. You can really kind of give the people what they want and they're they're into it and they care. And that's really fun to design for. We ended with kind of a discussion on tech. So tech is going to allow people to be in games um, in every way. Physical limitations won't exist the same way they do in the real world as they do in gaming. You talked about some really cool solutions you'd implement in like colorblind mode for Minecraft. Some of the other ones you know about, like the, the mode for people who I uh, can't see in Minecraft, which was it called? Beyond what Sight. I forget. Beyond Sight. There we go. Which is really cool. And we ended with a little discussion on, on managerial styles and leadership with you noting it's important to always control your reactions to things. You can be who you are. You can be aggressive. You just have to note when it is important to kind of keep your own anger, your own frustrations in check to actually communicate effectively with the team. So the last question that I like to ask everyone who comes on the show, um, this is fun because it gives it gives me a chance to know a little bit more about like you and your career and how it how it's changed over the years. 
Um, but what is one thing you would like to tell your younger self about getting into the gaming industry and being successful? I think, uh, I think this is true for a lot of people who have reached their goal, but it's, you know, there's going to be a lot of people who say you can't do it along the way and who say you don't have what it takes to say you're to this or to that, or you don't have this and you don't have enough that it just, you know, you know who you are and just make sure you always remember that. I think that's been kind of an overarching lesson throughout this episode. And I know that I'm going to keep that in mind, especially when it comes to receiving or reading negativity about myself that I really, you're right. It really doesn't matter um, what people on the internet say, <laughs> or at least I will try really hard to make it not matter what people on the internet say, I think is probably a more accurate framing. Ashley, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you, follow you, check out your work? If there's anything you want to share, feel free to share. And if you're super private, feel free not to share. Um, yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, I have a website. It's just my first and last name.com, ashleyolmstead.com. Um, and other than that, find me on LinkedIn, but I don't, I'm not too much of a public person. So good luck finding me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, you're put. Your portfolio is really cool and it walks through a lot of the projects. Also, I will note that Olmstead is O-L-M-S-T-E-D. There's no A in there. I keep trying to sneak the A in the stead part, but it's not in there. Um, but anyways, everyone should go check out Ashley's portfolio because there's a lot of really cool stuff in there. For all the listeners, be sure to keep leaving those five-star ratings and reviews. Check out other Holodeck Media podcasts. You can catch me on the Business of Esports Live After Show every Wednesday afternoon. And I'm also on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Lindsay Koss. I am very online. <laughs> so feel free to reach out. We will see you next week. Bye. Thanks for joining us here on Meta Woman. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. Leave a five-star review and tell your friends, family, and colleagues all about us. Also, make sure to follow Meta TV on all socials to get more of the best Metaverse content anywhere. Tune in every week for another episode of Meta Woman.